All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Today, for the first time in over two months, Kevin is rejoining the show. Kevin, welcome back to the land of the living. I'm back. It's good to be back. Thank you. I know you've been super busy with work, all kinds of travel, all of that. Did you go anywhere interesting in the past two months? In the past two months, um, I was out in St. Louis, Missouri. It's a pretty so good city. Kind of underrated a, city, if I do say so very myself. Very underrated. Um, definitely lots of good culture there. Lots of good food. Did you get any good yeah. food? I did. Went to the old Mission Taco joint. Oh, yes. Of course. Um, can't remember the name of it, but went to this really good Mediterranean uh, restaurant as well. So did some of that and then enjoyed some of the good St. Louis beer, not to be confused with Budweiser, <laughs> um, but there are actually uh, some really good breweries out in St. Louis. Not as good as Denver, I will say that, but uh, still pretty good stuff they have out there as well. So uh, two quick stories related to what you just said. Both of these stories are about my kids, but the first one is Mission Taco Joint. So the Your first, kids in beer, huh? Well, well that's the second story. Just wait for that one. So <laughs> the first story is Mission Taco Joint. We went there uh, when our oldest was about seven or eight months old. And uh, mm. we ordered some tacos and we asked the server, are these tacos spicy? Because you know, our little our little child here is like just starting a solid food, obviously does not do spicy. The server's like, yeah, you've got nothing to worry about. Totally fine. And so she brings the tacos and, you know, they're they're small tacos, right? They're a la carte. And so we right. kind of emptied, emptied out the tacos into little little bites of food that that uh, she could pick up and eat. And. We did that, and then she took a bite, and next thing we know, she's bawling. Oh, and we're no. like, oh, no, what happened? And we tasted it, and the, uh, all of the stuff was laced with jalapenos, and oh, it was very, very spicy. So we had a traumatic yeah, they experience there. Do, uh, they definitely yeah. do have um, some very uh, aggressive seasoning. It's a great tacos, but probably... What? not the best thing for <laughs> yeah exactly i mean really i'm a huge fan kids. i'm a huge fan of aggressive spicy taco seasoning it's how it should be done but um we had a traumatic experience there <laughs> with, <laughs> with her with our oldest uh and then the second one uh you said not to be confused with budweiser so uh, our kids have watched toy story recently and our three-year-old was confused about the name of buzz lightyear and, <laughs> and thought his name was uh, either Buzz Light Beer or Bud Light Beer, which I thought was even <laughs> more hilarious. Oh, man. So Bud Light Beer to the rescue. Yeah, always to infinity and beyond and hopefully not that many beers. <laughs> hopefully not. Yeah. Um, well, I was hoping that we could do this podcast in person, Kevin. Uh, I was going to be up in Denver this weekend. We were going to record it this evening or yesterday evening, I think. And I was envisioning us sipping bourbon while we did this. It would have been a great, fun conversation. But we'll have to do that next month when I'm in Denver because the, the snow came along. and We're in the middle of snow apocalypse. Yeah, we really are. This is the first time since we've lived here that we've had snow for almost 24 hours straight. It just I don't, know about, right. I don't know about you where you are, but down here in the springs or up here since we're at a higher elevation. I don't know what's more appropriate. Uh, mm. It just snowed and snowed and snowed and kept coming, which is unusual. It did. Well, down in the mountains, they've just gotten completely smacked. I know. Uh, Breckenridge Ski Resort has gotten over three feet in the last two days. Do they close when actually, it's that bad? I mean, I know that fresh snow is good and powder is great, right. but if it's if it's that much of a dumping, do they just have to shut down for a day? So I think they were open for the most part, but I would not be surprised if they had to close down certain areas because of avalanche risk. And, sure, yeah. You know, they go out there and kind of blast uh, to try to loosen up and shake some actual 
avalanches loose in order to mitigate that problem. But I, I mean, I was looking at some, there's some news articles about like Vail. So ski resort out in, in Vail and some of the lines to uh, go out there because everyone sees, uh, you know, fresh snow. So there's a huge bum rush to go out there. And I saw these massive lines and. So are the lines uh, you know, like on, on the mountain for the lift or like lines on I-70 driving out there? Well, somewhat both. I mean, the pictures I saw were lines to uh, actually get on the lift to oh, go boy. up the mountain. But actually the weather was so bad that they closed I-70 um, for about 10 or 12 hours yesterday. So, I mean, people were just stuck out there in the in basically blizzard conditions. So. Sounds like not fun. the best place to be uh, stuck. But. Well, I'm happy to say I, I have not like scoured the web intensively for this, but I have not seen any reports of any fatalities due to the weather. So that's something to be grateful for. Yeah, me neither. But it certainly yeah. would not be fun to be stuck in the mountains for 10 to 12 hours. Like when you don't have a hotel, all the hotels are taken because lots of other people are in your situation and you're living in your car. So glad that wasn't us, Kevin. Yep, definitely not us. Hey, happy uh, memorial of St. Josephine Begita. Are you familiar with her story? Yeah, we've we've talked about her story on this podcast. That's right. We? It was actually on a previous Encyclopedia episode, I think, right? It was. Yeah. It was. Well, for our listeners, if you didn't hear that episode, or if you did, but you don't remember exactly, really cool story. You should look up St. Josephine Bakhita, B-A-K-H-I-T-A. She was born in the uh, Darfur region of Sudan, was kidnapped, sold into slavery, eventually taken to Italy, but while in Italy, started um, being catechized by the Kenosian sisters, eventually became Catholic. And then when her, her, um, her owners wanted to take, take her back to Africa with them, she objected and wanted to stay. Fortunately, an Italian judge, I'm trying to move away from using the word fortunately this year, Kevin. Uh, <laughs> providentially, uh, an Italian judge ruled on her side and said, no, slavery is illegal in Italy. I don't care. I don't care that you got her in Africa and brought her back here. It's illegal here. She's been free since 1885. She was able to remain in Italy as a free woman and join the Kenosian sisters uh, and ministered with them for the rest of her life. She was beatified in 1992 and canonized in 2000. Um, I don't know numerically, but one of the one of the saints canonized towards the end of the John Paul II pontificate. So really cool story. Her memorial is today, February 8th, as we're recording this. So happy memorial, Kevin. Well, thank you. Absolutely. One of the uh, truly great modern saints and a great example for us all. Great story, too. Yeah, totally. Um, all right. Well, you know what time it is, Kevin, right? What time is it? Encyclopedia. 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 I teed that one up very well for you, Kevin. You had, you had no idea what to expect. <laughs> I was completely lost. <laughs> All right, Kevin, what is the encyclical that we are talking about today? So today is the encyclical letter, Caritas and Veritate. So this is one of the encyclicals that was issued by Pope Benedict XVI. Um, what, 2009? Yes, it was published on the Solemnity of the Holy Apostles, Peter and Paul. On the 29th of June, 2009, we were undergraduate students, Kevin. Back oh, when we were oh young. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Which, which is one way to look at that. The other way is this is just over 10 years old. It's pretty recent oh, stuff. Wow. This is not ancient history. Right. It's, you know, it's pretty, that's pretty wild. And, it, and it's, um, 
so we talk about uh, Benedict's kind of pontificate. What well, this was uh, about four years into his pontificate, then two thousand nine. Yes. So, um, actually, you know, you think about that, and it seems it seems like a fairly short period of time, four years, but that also would have been just about halfway through his pontificate as well. Right. Exactly. It was, uh, I think, beginning of twenty thirteen that he announced he would step down. Mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah. maybe end of twenty twelve, but right around that time frame. So Caritas and Veritate, what does that translate to? So this is charity and truth. So um, when we look at kind of the grand scope of the encyclical letters that Pope Benedict actually issued, um, we had the, well, he, in his pontificate, he issued two of the three uh, that became his encyclicals on the theological virtues, uh, faith, hope, and love. And then this one actually stands apart from those. This is an encyclical on his uh, social teaching. So it kind of became somewhat traditional, I think, about once every decade for the Pope to issue um, something that was on the social teaching or social doctrine of the church. And this is um, his, Pope Benedict's contribution to that corpus. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that distinction because when we when we read Deus Caritas Est and then Space Salvi, those encyclicals were very rich in systematic theology and soteriology because that's what Benedict has has done for a lot of his life. It was it was more, I guess, kind of in keeping with what Benedict had written. But this one just reads differently. And so if you're opening up mm-hmm. this thinking that you'll see a an encyclical very similar to Deus Caritas Est, for example, you're not going to because it is on Catholic social teaching. Like like Kevin was saying, you know, once per decade, roughly, uh, there's an encyclical that comes out on Catholic social teaching. And what that means is that this it, this helps Christians understand um, how to live and the obligations that their faith places on them with respect to society. Now, one thing I'll say, and we can talk about this more at length as we go go through here, Kevin. But you know, it's it's evident that um, that Benedict does not have formal training. Uh, you know, does not have a, a PhD in economics, for example, because right. this is not the purpose of a, a an encyclical on Catholic social teaching is not to provide the basis of a policy document. That's not, you know, the, this is not like wonkish. Uh, these encyclicals lay out general principles that are to be universally applied and considered by Catholics in public life um, and in private life, but but in life. And that's the thrust of this. So, you know, if you're expecting to go through here it, or any teaching on Catholic social teaching and find specific things about, uh, you know, what type of marginal tax rates are appropriate and what are not, (laughs) uh, you're going to be sorely disappointed. But instead, the idea is to enumerate general principles um, that apply for the faithful and should be prudentially applied to our lives and society. And really, it's it's more about defining the desired end state. So even when in this document, we'll probably get into it, when uh, Pope Benedict does start talking about some some economic, not so much economic policy, but he talks a lot about economic ends. And like you said, it's it's not like reading you know, Milton Friedman or um, so, or someone like that who starts laying out the ideal economic system for achieving certain ends. Pope Benedict is basically saying, you know, regardless of the the means, the ends for um, economics are this, and the ends of political activity should be this. Um, so that's kind of, I don't, I don't want to say, well, you know, I might as well say sometimes these Catholic social doctrine or Catholic so- social teaching can sometimes come across or 
is portrayed as somewhat controversial. Um, and I think that's more or less because people sometimes interpret a statement of ends as an endorsement of certain means, um, which is not necessarily the case, although uh, it certainly sparks some interesting conversation. Yeah, well, I mean, let's just, uh, we'll jump to that. I want to come back and sort of summarize the encyclical, but just as a quick example of what you were saying, there's a point in this encyclical, I'm trying to find the exact uh, exact uh, part here. Um, yeah, so here it is, paragraph 22. In this paragraph, Benedict is talking about new forms of poverty that are emerging, et cetera. And there's this line that says, the world's wealth is growing in absolute terms, but inequalities are on the increase. Okay, now that's a that can be a pretty charged line if you introduce that into a an American political debate, for example, right? Uh, you can imagine, you can you know think think forward to October, uh, September, October when we have presidential debates between the the Democratic nominee and uh, and Trump. Uh, there there could be a statement like that made by the Democratic nominee, and that would be viewed as a partisan statement and implying a certain uh, remedy to solve that, right? But as you were just saying, Kevin, these documents are about about current states and end states, right? They're not, they're not policy prescriptions. And so objectively, it's a bad thing if inequalities are on the increase, right? If, if, uh, if the gap is growing between the haves and the have nots, and you'll find similar statements and claims throughout Catholic social teaching that remind us and call, call to mind this idea that to be in Christ is to be different. To be a Christian is to think about your relations with your fellow human beings in a totally different way. Uh, so I think that that maybe illustrates what you were saying there, Kevin, about how this this stuff can be viewed as controversial, but it's important to understand the intent behind it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that captures it very well. Okay, well, let's back up briefly and talk about this encyclical structure a little bit more. So there are six, there's an introduction, a conclusion, and there are six chapters in between. The first chapter we'll talk about briefly is called the message of popularum progressio, and and we'll we'll talk about what that is in just a second. The second chapter, human development in our time. The third chapter, Fraternity, Economic Development, and Civil Society. The fourth, The Development of People, Rights and Duties of the Environment. The fifth, The Cooperation of the Human Family. And the sixth, The Development of Peoples and Technology. Okay, so let's just go right to chapter one here, Kevin. There are a few things I think that we should talk about there, and then we can go on to chapter two. But I mentioned that it's uh, the message of Populorum Progressio. Populorum Progressio is one of the most important of the church's social teaching encyclicals. It was authored in 1967 by Pope Paul VI, just after the close of the Second Vatican Council. And in this uh, encyclical, uh, Pope Paul VI mentions wages, employment, worker unions, the universal universal destination of resources and goods, etc. And then 20 years later, John Paul II wrote Solicitudo Rei Socialis in commemoration of the 20th anniversary of Populorum Progressio. And then 42, 42 years later, we have Benedict XVI here dedicating his first chapter of his social teaching encyclical to the message of Populorum Progressio. And in so doing, he highlights a few things, two of which I want to highlight at least. The first is Benedict points out that there is a great continuity in the church's social teaching. He says it is not, a, not an example of you know, two typologies, one being post-conciliar, one being pre-conciliar. Conciliar, of course, referring to before or uh, relating to the council. So preconciliar being before Vatican II, postconciliar being uh, after Vatican II. And often you hear this, this uh, word or phrase used in discussions about Catholic theology and the development of doctrine, etc. But Benedict is saying there's not two different schools of thought pre and postconciliar. Um, rather, there's a great continuity between those two things. And fundamentally, 
uh, at the core of that continuity, this is the second point I want to make that is uh, made forcefully in Popular and Progressio and reiterated by Benedict here, the central point of that continuity between uh, all of the church's various teachings on uh, uh, all of the church's various documents on social teaching is that authentic development has to be integral. Uh, Paul VI in Popular and Progressio said it has to be it has to promote the good of every man and of the whole man. So that's the central insight of Catholic social teaching, that uh, authentic development has to promote the good of man, and promoting the good of man necessarily means promoting the good of the whole man, right? doesn't necessarily, or it doesn't by definition, only focus on um, his uh, economic status, for example, how much money he has in his savings account. doesn't uh, focus merely on his retirement income doesn't focus on uh, him only having a good house, but there's there's a deeper, more holistic aspect to the whole man that must be the focus of every social effort. Yeah, it's uh, th- that phrase integral human development comes up early and often throughout the entire encyclical, and it's worth I think just um, continuing with the definition that you've kind of put in front of us, which is this idea of integral development recognizes that man is not merely a material being. We're not merely technological beings. Uh, We are spiritual beings with souls and development that ignores any one part of the human experience uh, that is not aimed towards the perfection of the entire human person is inauthentic development, I think, as Pope Benedict would say, that it is you can have development that is um, you know, good in its own in its own ways, but if it is not ultimately ordered towards the development of the whole human person, uh, spiritual, material, uh, all of the different aspects, then it is not authentic and will ultimately be deficient. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And the final thing I want to mention from this chapter uh, is Benedict's kind of summary of the Christian vision of development. And then we can use that as, as kind of the, the foundation for going forward and talking about the rest of this encyclical. So in chapter one, this is in section 18, paragraph 18, Benedict says, the Christian vision has the particular characteristic of asserting and justifying the unconditional value of the human person and the meaning of his growth. The Christian faith does not rely on privilege or positions of power, nor even on the merits of Christians even though these existed and continue to exist alongside their natural limitations, but only on Christ, to whom every authentic vocation to integral human development must be directed. The gospel is fundamental for development because in the gospel, Christ, in the very revelation of the mystery of the Father and of his love, fully reveals humanity to itself. Taught by her Lord, the church examines the signs of the times and interprets them, offering the world what she possesses as her characteristic attribute, a global vision of man and of the human race. Precisely because God gives a resounding yes to man, man cannot fail to open himself to the divine vocation to pursue his own development. The truth of development consists in its completeness. And this is the part that you quoted, Kevin. If it does not involve the whole man and every man, it is not true development. So that is, that is Benedict's uh, kind of paragraph-long summary of the central insight of the church in its Catholic social teaching and how it is grounded entirely on Christ. And that Christ's interest is in loving every man and the whole of every man. So with that foundation, Kevin, let's go ahead and talk about chapter two, which is human development in our time. There's a few things that I, I highlighted that I wanted to talk about in this. I'm sure you have a few as well. The first thing I want to say on this point that Benedict made in chapter one about the continuity of social teaching. Um, there is certainly a continuity in styles, in points of emphasis, etc., between 
uh, Benedict and his successor, Pope Francis. Um, and I'm on record. I mean, I, I like Pope Francis. He's the right man for the job because he's the man that the Holy Spirit selected in the conclave. And I'm also on record saying that Benedict XVI is a hero of mine. Um, however, you know, I've also, I've, I wouldn't even say I've been critical of Francis, but I think it's, it's factually correct that Francis has, uh, been, uh, he's sort of been want to do these interviews that are rather off the cuff, makes comments that are open to misinterpretation, et cetera. And uh, I'm not ascribing malice to any of those instances, but but Francis and Benedict are not the same person. And, and Benedict was um, a little bit more formal, I think, maybe a lot more formal, um, was hesitant to make those sort of off the cuff remarks, et cetera. And so what that has contributed to is a is a perceived difference, at least in uh, in styles and um, in folks focus of teaching. And, you know, the part of media who who proclaim Francis, the who am I to judge pope? Uh, certainly a uh, a perception that Francis is not as committed to the teaching of the church as Benedict is. And when Francis comes out with encyclicals like Laudato Si that talk about human ecology and environmentalism and protecting the earth, you know, they, they look at that as a market shift from what's been emphasized before, right? So, you know, Benedict was the Rottweiler who just focused on sexuality. And now we have Francis who's much gentler and talks about the environment. Well, all of that, of course, is baloney. And I, you're laughing, Kevin, because I, I know you agree. But I just think it's interesting that if you look at this encyclical, look at section 21, for example, in chapter two, um, Benedict Benedict is writing, yet it must be acknowledged that the same economic growth has been and continues to be weighed down by malfunctions and dramatic problems. And then in the next section, he goes on to to say uh, what I already said about the world's wealth growing in absolute terms, but inequalities are on the increase. Right. That's something that that Bernie Sanders could could say. Right. That could, could come out of Bernie Sanders mouth. Oh, absolutely. Uh, um, elsewhere in this encyclical, we'll see it, I think, as we go on. There are points where Benedict is calling upon all Christians to protect the earth, to care for the world, um, to promote what he calls human ecology. He used that phrase long before Francis ever did in Laudato Si. So this, to my mind, speaks to the continuity of the church's teaching. It is true that, that popes have their different emphases of focus, and that's that's totally fine, and I think that's a good thing, and the Holy Spirit directs directs the popes we hope to do that. Um, but this is not this is not a remark you know a markedly different thing uh, from what was said prior to Benedict or what is being being said after Benedict. So I think that's another important thing to point out. Yeah, and you know this section is is loaded with a a, a lot of really interesting thoughts. I think, and um, you know one of the one of the very immediate realizations that hits you as you're reading through this is that. Uh, even what we would, you know, a lot of people, you try to run away from these terms conservative and liberal when you're talking about the Catholic Church. Um, but I would definitely say that from a sense of what is happening in this document, you definitely come to a realization that, um, you know, even conservative Catholicism or what you consider maybe traditional Catholicism is definitely not in lockstep with anything resembling, you know, what we would consider now American political conservatism for the exact reasons that you, you kind of just outlined. And I, and I know we'll get into a little bit more, but uh, you know, before kind of derailing this and turning it into some kind of, you know, political discourse, I did think, you know, one of the very interesting things that happens in this section in chapter two is you start to see a little bit more of the fleshing out of what Benedict talks about in regards to the title of this encyclical or the incipit of this encyclical, which is charity and truth. And he starts talking about the possession of truth and he relates it back to, uh, especially on the side of wealthy countries, he talks about the right of intellectual property. 
And I thought this dialogue or this, this presentation was very interesting because he brings out this idea, and I think a very poignant idea, that truth is the possession of all mankind. And it raises a very important question if we start asking ourselves about intellectual property rights. And certainly intellectual property, when we start talking about the development of new technology, when we start talking about uh, the advancement in, in research and development, especially you think research and development is very expensive and the people who invest in that should be able to reap some sort of benefit in order to, at a bare minimum, continue the the advance of, of those developments in that sect of knowledge. But it raises a very interesting question when you start looking at you know whether or not people or some subset of society has an exclusive right to truth which is you know the possession of all mankind uh, especially when you go to the gospel and the gift of of god's logos of the account of all of nature of all of um all of the universe and how god gave that as a gift to man in the form of his son jesus christ and it it definitely challenges, I think, the um, the inclination to to believe or have a desire to be able to hold on, even from an intellectual perspective, to something that is kind of your own. And it brings out almost the most base of human desires to have something that you possess for yourself, even if it is something like knowledge, um, which I just thought that was a very, it's a very short section, but certainly a very interesting one. Yeah, it absolutely is. And uh, just to go back to your comment about, you know, not wanting to turn this into a political discussion. Uh, I know you're saying that because the task at hand in front of us today is the discussion of this encyclical. We're not afraid of engaging in political conversations per se. And in fact, I don't know if you'd be interested in doing this with me, Kevin, but I'm, I've, I've thought about doing a, an episode on voting probably later in the year as the general mm. election cycle continues. <laughs> but I, I, uh, Catholics need to be very careful about how they think about voting. And uh you know, I, I know several um, several Catholic friends who are very, uh, very well formed and know their dogmatic theology very well. Uh, and, you know, they'll they'll post uh, post, you know, Nancy Pelosi memes or Trump impeachment memes or whatever the case is. And, uh, you know, I think we have to be very careful about falling into the binary of American right and left because the truth is much more complicated than that. And and we are called to be different. And so I think if you find yourself very comfortably aligning with uh, every plank of the platform of any party, um, you will you you should reexamine some of the some of your beliefs in that sense. All right. And there's certainly not a, a Catholic political party right now. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Precisely. Um, because there are there are things, you know, you could be on either party and find many things to to quibble with or to just flat out disagree with. So. Okay, um, let's go on. So in the in this chapter two as well, the other thing that I wanted to talk about is that uh, Benedict points out that the church's interest is never merely economic. And this is probably obvious, so it doesn't bear too much time, I don't think. But he says, the, the mere, this is section 23, the mere fact of emerging from economic backwardness does not resolve the complex issue of human advancement. Um, so it's, it's more than just money. It's more than just helping people develop. Uh, in fact, development itself can have this sort of, you know, so-called development itself can have this perverse uh, uh, result when it's not done properly. So we, are, we already talked about what authentic development means, right? The integration and development of the whole man and every man 
When development is not done that way, when it, for example, focuses merely on uh, lifting up everyone economically and just giving everyone money or enabling everyone to have money, um, the problem is that you end up with these results where people uh, have less of an understanding of their own inherent dignity. Uh, they have less of an understanding of God. They have uh, a sort of uh, technologically induced uh, social isolation, which we can talk about in chapter six, all of these things, uh, all of which are bad. And there's what I would call sort of Benedict's uh, take on on true the true dangers of neocolonialism, because he says in section 29 that ec- economically developed or emerging countries export this reductive vision of the person and his destiny to poor countries. Uh, and he says this is the damage that superdevelopment causes to authentic development when it is accompanied by moral underdevelopment. So in other words, a vision of development that is economic only and leaves behind the moral aspect of development, focusing on the whole of man rather than just his economic uh, opportunities, uh, does damage to him and his his vision. So, yeah. so I thought that was really interesting because normally we talk about neocolonialism, uh, you know, giving uh, giving handouts, right? And obliterating uh, indigenous cultures, et cetera, and those things; those things certainly could be true. But Benedict is pointing to an even deeper problem with what we would often call neocolonialism. Yeah, and he really he brings out through this whole section that you've kind of taken us through that there's kind of this false linkage, I think, in in our modern minds of uh, technological, economic development, and moral development. And this really is kind of it is probably the the biggest single problem with the kind of framework which is now known by as progressivism this idea that somehow because um, technological or economic advancement is continuing that that somehow implies that moral advance is also continuing so all of the um, call it cultural aspects of a society that is economically materially and technologically advanced somehow implies that their moral progression if you want to call it that is is also uh, continuing a pace with that when in fact i think benedict is bringing out an idea that the you could have a cultural progress or you could have an adherence to um, in the case of the catholic church to eternal truths that are unchanging and not have any sort of material progress or a very slow pace of material progress and that does not imply you know cultural superiority from a moral sense um, on on the society that is continuing its technological and material advance. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And and on that note, I think we can jump to chapter three. There's just one thing I want to talk about briefly with you in chapter three, and that's globalization. I'm looking at at section or paragraph 42 here, Kevin, where uh, Benedict is talking about globalization and how it's it's often viewed in fatalistic terms. It's it's going to happen. Uh, we can't do anything about it. We just have to figure out how we're going to live in a new globalized world, etc. And he says, you know, it's true that it is a socioeconomic process, but that's not its only dimension. It's also a fundamentally uh, human process that is going on. And so back to our point about how these are not policy documents, but rather uh, documents that outline the principles and duties of the Christian. Uh, Benedict, in this section about globalism, globalization, says Basically, globalization a priori is not good or bad. It's not a fundamentally bad thing that's transforming the world. It's also not a fundamentally good thing that holds, you know, immense promise and will will not be destructive. I mean, he says it can be it can be either one depending on how it's steered. And at the very end of the section, indeed, the very end of the chapter, uh, he says what's important is that 
people steer the globalization of humanity in relational terms, in terms of, of communion and the sharing of goods. You know, so, so how is globalization steered towards authentic human development? Again, a general principle reminding Christians of their duty towards one another in relationship. What do you make of Benedict's thoughts on globalization here? Yeah, I think I'm looking for the exact line and I'm not finding it. So I'll just summarize or, or paraphrase. But he makes this statement about how the fact of globalization, um, that, that, that globalization essentially brings us closer together in a physical sense, but it doesn't make us de facto any more fraternal. So we might have more contact with other human beings. We might have contact with human beings of other cultures and that contact um, through globalization through our techno technologicalization i don't even know if that's a word but we'll go with it sure that yeah sure <laughs> that increased contact has does not of necessity and in fact i think if you look at the objective evidence would imply like we are not necessarily growing closer together in the sense of uh, growing in charity or growing in aid or growing in in love towards our neighbor so the globalization as as you mentioned, as he mentions, can be a great good. It can be neutral. It can actually be negative in some senses. And ultimately, it goes back to this idea, again, of integral human development, that development in one sense, um, in this case, globalization, is not necessarily meaningful or not true development unless it also is accompanied by a development of charity towards each other, which perfects globalization in the sense of perfecting our our fraternity with the entire human society it's well said you should you should ghostwrite these encyclicals kevin I, i'm just <laughs> rambling all right so chapter four has some of my favorite content in the whole encyclical um the first thing to point out we just talked about duties oh, yeah. and the purpose of uh, encyclicals in reminding christians of their duties one of the things I love talking about is how our American political discourse is often so impoverished by this obsession with rights. You know, I have a right to this. I have a right to this. I have a right to this. And uh, the the danger, I think, of overemphasizing rights is that you you sort of increasingly atomize and individualize each person. And you forget that we are actually all living in community and should be living in community. And in fact, uh, we are in our most flourishing existence when we live in community. Um, and so I like, I like how chapter four starts out with Benedict talking about this uh, section 43 or paragraph 43. Um, he says, many people today would claim that they owe nothing to anyone except to themselves. They are concerned only with their rights and they often have great difficulty in taking responsibility for their own and other people's integral development. Hence, it is important to call for a renewed reflection on how rights presuppose duties if they are not to become mere license. So in order to have a flourishing, uh, a flourishing uh, socioeconomic and political civilization that uses the language of rights, you need to have a healthy understanding and commitment to the duties that exist prior to the rights ever existing. Uh, and over, an overemphasis on, on those rights eventually leads to a disregard for duties, as Benedict says. So I think this is a really important idea, and we would be well served to remember this and to remind other people in our own society about that as well, that we have a duty, we have an obligation to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, to shelter the homeless, uh, and to, to love our neighbor, even if we're not you know, feeding, clothing, or sheltering our neighbor, just to, to love them and to seek their good, to seek their, maybe we could say, their authentic development. Yeah, it's, 
this is such a modern construction, this this assertion of, of rights, certainly something that we see kind of stem out of the Enlightenment. And it's interesting because political discourse, when we think from a modern terms, maybe 1500 on, but especially from the Enlightenment on, is so vastly different from when we see especially in the writings of our church fathers and the the writings that they founded a lot of their call it political philosophy upon that of the uh, ancients the greeks and romans where not to romanticize in any way greek and roman society plenty of issues plenty of political issues but one thing that is really interesting that you see especially in the philosophy of the great ancient political philosophers like plato and aristotle Cicero at all is there is foundational to their political philosophy this idea of duties and Aristotle goes so far as to say man is the political animal which I can think sums up sums up very well what you just said about how we exist in society uh, it's impossible more or less for us to exist outside of society and that existence within society imposes certain duties upon us and those duties are duties to the state their duties to our neighbor their duties to um, to the people around us more or less and the language of rights which has brought us a great many things because we can talk about you know the right to life uh, the right to uh, to dignified work and we can talk about these different foundational rights that are necessary for human existence but if we do not utilize the framework of duties which has been provided to us um you know even even looking in the old testament is foundationally a book of duties there are duties to to your god there's duties to um the rest of the the society in this case you know the hebrew society but ultimately it brings and i think benedict brings this out very well is our kind of modern conception of rights has run so wild that now you just you know, you hear people use the language of rights to describe the most trivial things, right? Like, I have a right to free time and uh, things of that nature. And and we really do, I think, have to get back to at least some emphasis on duties if we're, if we're ever going to realize this development that um, really is in the best interest of, of all Catholics and of all people around the world. Yeah, and in reminding us that we have these duties, Benedict reminds us further what some of those duties specifically are. And so my favorite part of the whole encyclical is paragraph 51, Kevin, where Benedict does a number of things, one of which is sounding a lot like Francis. As I already mentioned, there's a part of this encyclical where he talks about creation. And if you look at paragraph 51, he says, the church has a responsibility towards creation and she must assert this responsibility in the public sphere. In so doing, she must defend not only earth, water, and air as gifts of creation that belong to everyone. So right there, sounding a lot like, you know, it could be from the pages of Laudato Si, right? Um, there is a continuity, continuum. There is continuity uh, between the church's various documents on social teaching. So that bears repeating. But the second thing I mentioned, he says the words human ecology before Francis ever does. He's talking about this integrated understanding of the human person as both created in the image of God and situated in this creation that God has given her and or him. And this is uh, this is this is how we understand human ecology. And this is why uh, care for the environment is so important. And Mendick draws this linkage and makes it even more clear uh, just below that, where he says the decisive issue 
is the moral tenor of society. This is the part that I love right here. If there is a lack of respect for the right to life and to a natural death, if human conception, gestation, and birth are made artificial, if human embryos are sacrificed to research, the conscience of society ends up losing the concept of human ecology and along with it, that of environmental ecology. It is contradictory to insist that future generations respect the natural environment when our educational systems and laws do not help them to respect themselves. <laughs> That's pretty hard hitting. It's pretty good, right? <laughs> it's good stuff. I mean, it's it's just such a a reminder again, the theme of this document about integral human development that we, I think, especially as human beings, I, I speak for myself. I'm certainly a very analytical, analytically minded person, and and the the kind of I don't know framework of analysis to break these problems apart and what. Benedict is reminding us always is that these are all parts of a whole and you can analyze a problem, but if you don't put the pieces back together and remind yourself um, that, you know, this is all part of a whole. And especially when you look at this human ecology and he's talking, you know, there are extremes on both sides, just completely saying that nature is uh, basically a taboo not to be touched is completely wrong because God has given us dominion over nature and has provided to it for the benefit of um, our society and ourselves to, to just treat it as taboo is wrong, but on the same side to just exploit it blindly and, you know, completely wreck our society for the sake of making our lives a little bit easier in the short term is also completely wrong. And it's completely out of line with development. And it's, it's, he has such a gift, I think, for being able to take these problems and that are very difficult problems and present them in such a clear way. Yeah, it's. I, I totally agree. It's really remarkable too. I mean, I wonder if it's because he's he's German. Uh, Germans are <laughs> are traditionally very analytical thinkers, right? And yeah, and the language, I think, also. I mean, I studied German in high school. I'm I'm certainly not a German scholar by any stretch, but from what I gather, the language sort of values efficiency and and uh, and not beating around the bush, right? Is is a pretty direct language. Um, so I think it does help his communication style. Uh, he probably has some effective ghostwriters too, who, who help him craft these things. <laughs> but I mean, I, I say that, but you know, every, everything I've ever written by him, you know, long before he was a Pope and had people to help him write encyclicals. Uh, he's, he's always been a very clear communicator and I really value that about, uh, what he writes. Okay. So the other, the only other thing I'll say on this, um, this, uh, you know, future generations respecting the environment, um, and they have to be taught to respect themselves is that, I think this this gets lost in the in the uh, in the Francis encyclicals too that do talk a lot about you know respecting the environment. Francis would agree with Benedict here, right? That it's, there's there's one continuum, right? That pursuing human flourishing does look like caring for the environment, but it doesn't end there. In fact, it doesn't even begin there. Authentic human flourishing has to start with um, understanding man in relation to God. Where is man in relation to God? And understanding man, as you said, as a political animal, right, as a social being who exists uh, in and necessarily for community. And because that's the case, we have these obligations to our fellow men and we have these obligations to our fellow creatures, uh, the animal kingdom, uh, namely, and the rest of creation, the plant kingdoms. Um, is there more than one plant kingdom? My my biology uh, deficiency is, is highlighted here. <clears throat> maybe maybe there's know. one plant kingdom. I don't know. Uh, but you know, respect plants and animals and, and the earth, right? 
uh, the the ozone, uh, the rest of the atmosphere, um, all of that follows from our understanding of ourselves. But we have to have that rock solid understanding first and foremost. Well, and I think mo- our modern structure almost encourages or presupposes that man stands apart from nature, and that is, I think, evident in or is kind of uh, hinted at in Benedict's line that you've quoted. Is you know we. We tend to see our educational system, our laws as apart from nature because man stands above nature now. And Benedict is reminding us that we are a part of creation. We are a part of nature ourselves. And um, kind of a very, again, Aristotelian idea here that the law is something that educates society. It's not merely something that places a restriction or enables society or individuals in society to do something. It doesn't merely protect rights or impose duties, but in doing so, it is educating us. And by educating us in accord with nature, I think Benedict is saying that's really the only way that we can really have a true um, human ecology and a he- true human society that accords with nature is by reminding again that we are all part of this um, complete whole that cannot be separated out to like oh we have our human sphere over here where we'll do whatever we want um, we can you know experiment and act in in ways that are somewhat unnatural but at the same time you know, nature is very important and we have to protect it. It's like, it's this weird, and you see it all the time right now in our kind of our, our society where you have the same people who are talking about like, well, we should use um, contraception, which is inherently an unnatural thing. But at the same time, like we should never, um, you know, cut down a single tree because, because <laughs> you're damaging the earth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um. No, I think that's absolutely right. There's you've read more Nietzsche than I have, but I think there's a um, there's kind oh, of oh man, you're just, you're just gonna I'm gonna lose all my street cred with the audience now if you say things like that. <laughs> it's okay. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna put you put you two on the spot, but it does it does strike me that there's a there's a linkage here. I think with what you're saying, right? Nietzsche comes on the scene, looks at uh, looks at Christians as fundamentally weak, right? Uh, Marx, Marx follows, right? Religion is the opiate of the masses, et cetera. But, but back to Nietzsche here. So Nietzsche has this idea of the Ubermensch and to, you know, to Nietzsche, I think prioritizes like self-actualization, right? And sort of uh, willing yourself to achieve your own potential, et cetera. Um, the, the insight of the Christian religion, the Christian faith is different from that. Uh, and it's actually about subordinating yourself to God, and of course that was not a concern for Nietzsche, who declared that God is dead, uh, but Christianity is about subordinating yourself to God and recognizing where you are situated in the order of creation. Now, it, it doesn't mean that uh, it, it doesn't mean that it's, I think the idea is different from uh, Islam's idea of submission, for example, because Christianity also emphasizes the relational aspect between, between God and the created order, and specifically between God and man who is made in the image of God. So it's, it's different still from other monotheistic religions. Um, but the insight here is that it's about man humbling himself, recognizing where he is in the order of creation. And when he does that, he recognizes that, yes, before I talk about rights, I have to recognize that I have duties. And those duties mean that I have to do this and I have to behave in this way towards my fellow man. And they mean that, that you know, my, my own needs will not always come first, contra to, I think, the, the gospel that Nietzsche would preach, for example. Do I have that at least, you know, accurately summarized, you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Nietzsche's big thing is if 
in this modern society, if you're if you don't believe that God exists, and in his case, he's saying, well, you know, to society itself at this point has declared God is dead. Then why are you still adhering to something that resembles a Christian morality? And because he's that's you're right, it's a, an amoral existence which allows for the complete liberation of the individual to realize his or her potential. Um, whereas you know, Catholicism, Christianity, rightly recognizes that. Um, that the Christian morality is not inhibiting, but actually enabling the development of, of mankind. Yeah. I mean, in fairness to Nietzsche, uh, I will say that his internal logic is sound, I think, right now we we would disagree with him that God does exist, right? (laughs) But his internal logic is sound, right? If God doesn't exist, then, uh, what else have you? Uh, and I think it's it's one reason why this is a totally separate discussion, but I think it's one reason why the, um, you know a universal moral norm is is a good uh, argument for the existence of God. But but I digress. Um, I just do want to come back to this though very briefly because of what you said about Nietzsche, right? Nietzsche saying, "If God is dead, why are you still acting the way you do?" The message of this encyclical, indeed, the message of all of Catholic social teaching, is going back to what Benedict said, citing Populorum Progressio. It is that authentic human development isn't even just about the sort of like um, vague and benign idea of reminding people that we live in relation to each other, but rather reminding people that we live in relation to each other and we all live in relation to Christ. So I just want to go back to the quote that I had from chapter one here where uh, Benedict says, in promoting development, the Christian faith does not rely on privilege or positions of power, nor even on the merits of Christians but only on Christ to whom every authentic vocation to integral human development must be directed. And that's a super important insight. It all comes back to Christ. It doesn't come back to, uh, to esoteric ideas of relationship and community. Those are good things, but it all comes back to Christ. Uh, And that's why I think um, Benedict mentions the logos in here as well, right? The thing that holds all together. You're you're the Greek scholar here, Kevin, so you can talk more about the logos. But I love the I, I love the idea of the logos in John one one, um, and in uh, in the first chapter of Colossians as well, right? In Him, all things hold together. Christ is the one in whom all things cohere. If you lose your vision of Christ, if you lose your belief in Christ, the necessary consequence is that things will no longer cohere. Uh, they will not be integrated. They will be disintegrated. Uh, and so that's the important part. So for me, the outcome of something like this encyclical, uh, well, one, I guess there's a there's a surface level thing that's reminding me about things like, you know, rights presupposed duties and, uh, you know, uh, reminding me about ways to cultivate human flourishing, et cetera. The most fundamental thing, though, before all of that is that all this hinges on Christ. And that reminds me how important evangelization is about sharing the gospel with neighbors, about spreading the message of Christ uh, to all the world. Uh, which is, of course, the last thing that Jesus left his disciples with as a task before he ascended into heaven. Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, it goes that word logos, which we frequently translate to the word, uh, which means so much more than that. I mean, it's the account of everything. It's the internal logic of everything. And, you know, Benedict talks throughout this encyclical and especially in some of the later sections about the different instruments that we have at our employ in order to achieve human development. He talks about the economy. He talks about finance. He talks about political instruments. Um, And all of these, because they are all parts of the whole, they are all pieces of the logos. If they're oriented towards the truth, they're oriented towards the truth of Jesus Christ. They're oriented towards accomplishing the message that he, 
has given us about charity towards your neighbor, about taking care of those in need. I mean, the the injunction, you know, feed the hungry, clothe the naked. Those are not <laughs> like Christ doesn't say do those things, you know, kind of if you have the means or if you feel like it. Those are like directive orders, go and do this. And I think we have such a tendency to look and say, to blame things on, you know, the economy. We say, oh, it's a market failure. And we look at that like a market failure, like a monopoly or or something like supply and demand just wasn't quite right. Or there was only one company. And so they ran through and price gouged us. Like, You're right, yeah. And we talk about these things like like the market, as though the market is not a human Right. In, in, invention as though it's not human beings at play as though finance and money is this you know amorphous well, it's just the uh, it's uh, the exaltation of the invisible hand right exactly when i mean human impulses and human action are in play in all of these things in our political discourse is i mean politi- politics is the most human of activities probably by definition and by definition it is and if if those instruments are infused with the message of Christ, this is I think getting to why you know what what Benedict is calling charity in truth. It is the realization of charity through truth, which is the truth of Christ. And um, you know, if if we recognize those things and recognize our own deficiencies, uh, then then we can develop, we can progress as as a human society. But if we just look at um, these problems as you know. In the invisible hand at work, then um, you know some of us might continue to to improve our material existence, but none of us will develop into um, truly spiritual beings who are acting in in comport with the message that Christ Himself has given us. That's absolutely right. Uh, we're almost out of time, Kevin, but just two, we, we didn't talk about chapters five and six yet, and there's not a whole lot that I had queued up for us to discuss in this. But I want to talk about just just a couple of quick ideas from these chapters um, and, and they might have some application to your life uh, here as you listen to this. Uh, the first is chapter five, the cooperation of the human family. Benedict says one of the deepest forms of poverty is isolation. Uh, we'll come back to that in a sec. Chapter six, Benedict goes into the discussion of technology. He says in technology, we express and confirm the hegemony of the spirit over matter, uh, right? The world is ours to control. We can use technology to do that. Um, in saying this, I think Benedict anticipates a lot of the current problems with, with technology. We talk about social media, for example, uh, social isolation brought on by social media or instigated or exacerbated by social media. Uh, Cyberbullying is a fantastic example of that, um, or I should say a powerful example of that. Um, all of these things, all of these, uh, these you know, technology, just like, just like globalization, right? Technology is not a priori good or bad, but technology can be a bad thing and it can certainly be used for bad things. Um, if you're listening to this, uh, and you have a family, uh, well, you're certainly in a family, but if you have kids, for example, I would, I would encourage you to be very cautious about how you introduce technology in the home, how you leverage and use technology in the home. Um, technology can unite people, right? Think of like, I don't know, deployed soldiers overseas who can Skype with loved ones, right? Great, great example, very obvious example of technology, uh, keeping connections there when they would otherwise, uh, uh, you know, shrivel or suffer. But technology can also be very, very socially isolating. And it's counterintuitive, but it's, it's proven out time and time again by, you know, numerous peer-reviewed studies that have looked at the effects of uh, things like Facebook and Twitter on social isolation. So Benedict, I think, was anticipating a lot of the problems that technology creates. There's a great temptation um, in the realm of technology. This is the hegemony of the spirit over matter. Uh, what 
what we call the technocratic imperative. We've talked about this on Vernacular Podcast before, right? That just because you can do it, you should do it. And that drives a lot of our development of our technologies. Um, a lot of uh, science tries to do things just because they can or to prove that they can, to, to prove that hegemony of spirit over matter. Um, and that's a problem. So I think we need to be very careful in the context of community, especially in the context of our families, which are you know a, a small community, um, with how we leverage technology and use it and employ it. So that'd be my my parting word to to listeners on this. Anything on that, Kevin? Uh, I, I mean, I think you've you've covered it really well. I would I would just say I think this this idea again one of the deepest forms of poverty is isolation. It certainly bears out when we we look at some of the some of the very tangible problems that are facing our society today in terms of you know the rise of um, some forms of depression, the rise of uh, suicides in multiple parts of our society and anxiety is a huge part of that too anxiety absolutely it raises this question of how is it that in a time when for the vast majority of human beings i won't say all but for the vast majority of human beings material existence has never been um, more pleasurable more enjoyable and less strenuous how is it that we we still have these sorts of um, major kind of issues in our society. And it goes back to, again, this idea of integral human development. And I think it really proves the point that material advance on its own is not analogous or is, or is not synonymous with, with integral development. And it's like you said, it's so easy to find yourself isolated because you find yourself, you know, sitting at your computer all day, reading articles or sitting on a train or a bus or, uh, something like that with your ear pods in and, and completely ignoring those around you. Um, and it really, it's a beautiful reminder in this, this encyclical that, um, you know, you can be a member of a parish, you can be a member of a community and all you have to do is, is reach out. And, and if you already are, if you're not, if you're not feeling isolated at all, reach out to, to people you see who are, you know, sitting by themselves at church, maybe, or, or someone you see on the street corner who is alone. Um, it, it's if if one of the deepest forms of poverty is isolation, then one of the greatest forms of charity would be to reach out to someone who is isolated and and to provide them with a feeling of fellowship. With that call to action, Kevin, we'll end it there. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Creedal Catholic. We'll be back next week with more content. If you want to reach out to me or Kevin, you can reach me Zach Z A C at creedalcatholic.com or Kevin. K-E-V-I-N, just the standard way to spell Kevin, at credocatholic.com. <laughs> All right, thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, God bless you. Peace.